Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Gamers Anonymous, the podcast of board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. Hey, this is Anthony. And this is episode 386, Lord of the Rings versus Game of Thrones board games. We want to thank all our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. All right, fans, we are back and we are talking about two of the biggest fantasy epic operatic TV shows that are happening right now. Lord of the Rings is back in a brand new way on Amazon. So if you don't know too much about it, uh, the Rings of Power are going to be hitting your TV streaming services pretty soon. And out of nowhere, another series, Game of Thrones this time, with House of the Dragon, a prequel series. So two incredibly large gigantic dragon-sized genre shows coming to your TV. So we'll be talking about that on our feature review. Anthony, by chance, is it possible at all in any small way that you can think of that you may know anything at all about these things? I might. You might. Okay, good. Because we have a whole episode on it. So yeah. pull it together, buddy. I'll, I'm doing research right now. <laughs> Give me five minutes. I got to finish a book or two. They're, they're not that long. You, you've heard of these things is what you're trying to say. Maybe, maybe, maybe a little bit. <laughs> Happen to be a fan? You actually watch one of these or read one of these things? Yes, 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 yes. I'm actually in the middle right now of um, showing my kids the Lord of the Rings movies, the Peter Jackson movies. Ooh. My, we're in the middle of the two towers and my daughter is super bored. Oh. But, but my older my older child, he, he's super into it. So nice. it's a lot of fun. Uh, and then we were at the movie theater uh, a couple days ago 
watching the new Dragon Ball movie, which nice. they also didn't understand at all. <laughs> <laughs> and the, they had the preview on for Rings of Power, and then Jack like leans over to me. He's like, is that Lord of the Rings? It's like, yes. <laughs> it's very exciting. So uh, I'm doing it. I'm indoctrinating. It's happening. There you go, kids. Uh, yes, all the really good stuff. It's a, it's a good time to be a fan. I, I mean, I don't think... I mean, I think this is these were the days that we always dreamed about when we read these books, comics, and to actually see these things live on TV is quite amazing, in fact. I, I never thought we would see this amount. At this oh, it's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's not sustainable. So I really want to try to appreciate it as much as I can. These things mm. are ridiculously expensive. Yeah. Um, like Neil Gaiman, someone asked him on Twitter just today, When's season two going to get greenlit? And he's like, I don't know if it will. Sandman is very, very expensive. Sure. All these shows are very, very expensive. And, mm. you know, famously, Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, they've spent a billion dollars on that show already. Crazy. So uh, I'm going to appreciate it as long as it exists. <laughs> and eventually these companies will realize that they're crazy and they'll stop spending billions of dollars on genre shows. But until then... It's good to be a geek. It is. It is, in fact. Yeah, I think the Sandman too. Again, it's it's such a faithful adaptation of the graphic novels. It's so amazing to see that. And again, having lived through all the different movies and TVs and cartoon versions of it, it's amazing to see we finally got to the point where we get comic accurate representations in live action. I, yeah. I again shocked that we actually see that. No, it's crazy. Yeah, especially that one. Yes. You know, like we we saw, you know, Sin City. We saw Watchmen. We yes. seen, you know, uh, three hundred. Yeah, exactly. Like mm -hmm. all the Schneider stuff. All, all, yeah, <laughs> Zack Snyder basically doing one for one shots of whatever yes. he does. Yes, he does. Um, but Sandman, like pulling mm -hmm. that off, or at least you know getting close to pulling that off, is it's very impressive. I hope they do get a second season. Yeah. Speaking of pulling it off, <laughs> uh, if you have not yet, please, please check out Doom Patrol because HBO Max is, or at least the company that has recently purchased HBO Max, Paramount, you probably know about a lot of that stuff, is having a fire sale for the sake of their taxes. So they are dropping literally everything that they possibly can and already axed like a ton of things, including Sesame Street for some reason. They 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 act like 200 old episodes that they didn't want to pay you know residuals for for some reason but doom patrol is amazing and it's on it's on the chopping block so catch it now if you do like anything like the umbrella academy but want something a little more weird and more psychological and more character driven that's great umbrella academy is also great you should watch that too and sandman was great anthony sandman sandman what do you think i'm, I'm halfway through it I, i'm oh. liking it a lot so far Okay. And I, I, I also remind you, Anthony, and, and everybody else out there, you might have missed this. If you're a big fan, they dropped a quasi-double episode, like episode oh, 11. Yeah. So weird. <laughs> and it's actually, I, I will say, having watched the whole season and the episode, I actually like the most recent last episode. One's animation and one's live action. And I like that the best. I, it's it's kind of weird, but it's it's really a good it's it's really a good kind of it really feels as true as possible to the comic origin, and I was just really taken by that. And it has, if you take a look, it has like the most amazing voice cast possible 
on that too, which again, it's amazing. So yeah, it's, it's a perfect time. It's a great time. It's a wonderful time to be a geek, to love all that stuff. She-Hulk is out there. If you haven't watched She-Hulk, She-Hulk's a lot of fun. It's a funny kind of show. So uh, go in there, have a good time. Miss Marvel just wrapped up. Also another funny, you know, teen focused kind of young adult drama. That was a lot of fun. So Marvel's going light and fun and family, which is great because that's Disney+. Plus. And then eventually we'll get I guess, Wakanda Forever. They dropped those trailers too. That's going to be wrapping up, I think, one of their arcs. Is it? Is it? Is it one of their seasons, one of their phases? Yeah, they say it's the end of phase four. I, I don't know how, but that, that's really just because they haven't really told us what that movie's sure. about yet. So, like, I don't know. I don't know yeah. what they're doing. It's hard. Like, what else would you go out on, right? And yeah, I think it's... the new phase starts with Ant-Man and Wasp, where I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm just like, these movies are still around. I mean, I love Paul Rudd. And I'm just like, oh, that's, uh, yeah. I mean, that, that's where King's coming back. So it makes sense. <laughs> there you go. If, whole, if it's the King dynasty is the end of the yeah. whole thing, then I guess it makes sense to, I don't know. I don't know even know what makes sense anymore. Like <laughs> Marvel's well, exhausting. Yeah, they, there's a lot, as you said, Anthony, there's a lot of stuff out there. So there's a lot to enjoy. So sit back and enjoy it all. And if necessary, download it because it may not be up and live and shareable forever because yeah. that's the thing that's happening these days. So yeah, so for House of the Dragon and Rings of Power will be our feature review. We'll be talking about those amazing games. Maybe you played a few of them. Maybe you haven't played the best of them. And maybe you're wondering what the new season's coming up, what you should be investing your time and energy into. These are both wonderful huge game systems and they in some cases actually tie together with the games within their i guess like in their ilk so sometimes like and we'll talk more about this i don't want to give everything away for the episode but it's a lot of fun it's definitely worth time and investment a lot of these things are actually online versions too so you can even play them online you can even play them solo so there's a little bit of something for everyone and especially even if you don't like lord of the rings and game of thrones Guarantee you're going to find an amazing game system in there to share with other people. And really, now is the time. It's a really good time to get people interested in board gaming because these genre shows are just attracting so much attention. I think the new uh, Game of Thrones just broke records again. And absolutely, the rings of power for Amazon is going to break records. So you got you got them in, get them to play the games, and then you get them to play other games too. So a lot of fun with all that. All right, Anthony, so with that said, that's what's going on with our feature review and all the fun Marvel, DC, all the other great stuff out there. But let's talk about what all our friends are talking about, Anthony. What's our question of the week? All right, so a question of the week this week is, I mean, it's a little self-serving. Uh, we yeah. ask these questions occasionally. <laughs> like, what what do you want to see? What, what do you like on the show? Uh, so the question is, what kind of board game topics or discussions would you like to hear more of? from us or just in general. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of board game media out there. We are one among many very good shows. Uh, and, you know, what, what don't you hear enough of? So I'm always interested to hear this, not only to help us determine what would be interesting to put on the show, but also to know what people are jonesing for. Yes. Um, so Scott said, and a bunch of people mentioned this, revisit older titles. Mm-hmm. I think every time I ask this question, we get a few answers like this. Yeah. Uh, everyone chases the hotness and forgets about games that are three plus years old. Mm -hmm. uh, Francesco mentions specifically, you know, <laughs> how anytime we do the board game geek hotness, we mention, oh, shut up and sit down, talk about the game. That's why it's up there. We should do it too. 
Um, David mentions what are people blinging out their games with? So organizers, replacement components, nice. upgrades, etc. Um, so there's a nice little thread there about Etsy and, and kind of using that as an upgrade path. Mm-hmm. Lots of good stuff on Etsy. So we've done some reviews in the past of mm-hmm. like upgrades and organizers. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing recently, I don't think. But no, it, it's gotten a lot hard. I mean, I mean, we just had our ninth year anniversary episode. And I can remember, you know, throughout that time, that was more of a real thing in the industry. I remember Board Game Geek, they used to have like forum threads where you just watch patiently until someone mentioned like some quasi Plano box popping up in like Lowe's that, you know, it, it's meant to store screws. But if you use it for this game, it would fit perfectly in the box and you go run out and you buy a bunch of those or... And now, like, the company's finally caught on, and now most of them have pretty substantial inserts. And some of that's Kickstarters, because Kickstarter, like, you throw so much money at Kickstarter that they'll actually give you a decent insert this time. So I don't think there has been that need as much. Like, we, like Anthony, you mentioned, like, as far as Etsy's concerned, because, yes, Etsy was an, an amazing and still is an amazing place where all these wonderful creators creating all these different kind of game components but then again, like something for like Everdell, where they're like, oh, cool, you were all making money. We will now make the money instead. So now they create their own things. Or even like uh, Terraforming Mars, right? Terraforming Mars, like you went on Etsy, they always used to have a whole bunch of like 3D customizable tiles for Terraforming Mars. And then Terraforming Mars finally came out. Stronghold Games came out with this mega package with all the plastic that you could ever want and probably will <laughs> end up breaking down 10,000 years from now. <laughs> but in the meantime, you can play with all this stuff. So I don't think it's as essential as it once was, but I think that there's certainly a lot of things to look at and upgrade your game. I know when you and I were recently playing, I should talk about this at a later point, I picked up these really cool little, I don't know if they're teacups or something, but like these little rubber plastic polymer kind of you know pinch cups and these pinch cups are amazing because they're just big enough for the amount of pieces and they come in a whole bunch of different colors. And I was really happy to have those. And I just randomly found them on Amazon looking for like normal dice tray kind of things. So there is certainly a lot of stuff out there. So I think we'll have to circle around back to that at some point, maybe during the holiday season, right? Yeah, that'd be a good one. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, all right. So some other stuff people mentioned. Uh, Vigard mentions interesting or original forms of player interaction in games and mm. just the overall importance of player interaction yes. in games. I think it comes up in reviews sometimes, but I don't know if we've really like isolated that as a component of games. Yeah, I think we we have an upcoming episode around that. In fact, it's it's somewhat of a sorting game because I think oftentimes that's a mechanic that's not often thought about. Like, yeah, there's card drafting or you know, there's, you know, tile placement, but they don't necessarily tell you if, you know, the elements to it, like the personal elements, like, do you have to be daring? Do you have to be deceitful, right? Like, what is the personal characteristics that actually might, or secondary skills or competencies that might lend themselves to a game? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Roman mentions Tom Vassell's Look Back series being... Uh, a good thing <laughs> that more places should do. Nice. So specifically saying, let's decide a game of the year three to five years later. 
or revisit our earlier opinions at least. Nice. That's a fun thing. We've done that a little bit actually on the Patreon. So you can, yes. we've got back and listen to our old listen to our own older episodes and then mm-hmm. kind of and like do we still agree with what we thought nine years ago? And yes. Sometimes the answer is no. No. <laughs> We weren't bad at this. No, we weren't bad at this, but we had not played as many games. Um, Jill mentions a few things. Unique themes, forgotten gems, games that look ugly but play great. Uh, so, Splatter, I guess. Jill wants to- <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then Benjamin mentions the challenges of maintaining a collection and thoughts on culling. So, just... I, I guess topics on collecting in general, right? Because mm. kind of two halves of the hobby here. There's playing the games and then there's collecting the games. And I think we talk a lot about collecting the games off the air. We don't necessarily talk as much about that on the air. So that, yes. that could be an angle to look at. Yeah. That's going to be definitely going to be next, uh, an episode coming up. All right. All right. So if you'd like to add to the question of the week, please hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and obviously all the social media places you can find us. BoardGamersAnonymous.com. You'll have all the information about everywhere that we are. So you can always find what's happening with us and also be able to connect with us as far as all these questions, issues, concerns. And basically, if you have a topic or a game you want us to cover, that's the best place to go. And our Patreon account. Our Patreon account is the reason why we're able to produce episodes for you each and every week. Well, big thanks to our Patreon backers. And if you'd like to learn more about all of our wondrous missteps over the years when when it comes to board gaming uh check out patreon.com slash bga because again there's a lot of great episodes on there and if there's an episode that you would like to hear special um our patreon account is where it happens so let us know hit us up and support uh again thank you so much for your support any way you do it it means the world to us thanks again all right anthony so that's what's going on with our friends out there let's talk about what everyone wants us to talk about our acquisition disorders. All right. So uh, for me, it's going to be the new tea game of the year. Uh, <laughs> Again, didn't they run out of letters already? Come on, guys. Pick a different letter. Come on. There's a lot of other good letters. When are they going to move on? Why would they stop doing it when they have a thing? Because the company name doesn't even have a T in it. I know. It's so stupid. <laughs> it doesn't make any... like. I don't get me wrong. The board board dice games, great company. Like honestly, a great company. The T games, great games. When so, but I have a really hard time remembering that the T games are the games that belong to board and dice. I just yeah. don't. It doesn't. I don't know it why. Thing. It is. It is kind of a funny thing that way. Um, and it's weird too because I don't think Terracotta Army is meant to be a T game. It just it's about the Terracotta Army, but it is de facto a tea game so we had two tea games from board and dice coming out at the same time can i can i i mean like what happens in board and dice game world right like so if you're if you're a designer and you want to pitch a game to that company do you have to change the game to a t or do you just have it as a t letter game because you know that's the only game they'll take chicken and egg situation man i don't know Mm -hmm. Because there's another game we found about a terraforming, um, I'm sorry, a terracotta army, not a terraforming army. That would be a completely different game, but it also would work with that company because it's letter T. Uh, but again, it's not named after the terracotta army. It doesn't have the T there. So I don't know. If you want to pitch your game to them, 
start with the letter T? <laughs> I think so. I think you're like halfway in. Like if you have a game that starts with a T, you should be in contact <laughs> right now. Like um, legally, they're the only people who can actually release it. I think I, that's, that's the thing. It also helps that it's Tashini and Luciani. Luciani, like, do you think Tashini got the job because his name starts with the letter T? I don't know. <laughs> that's a good question. What about um, Turtsy? What about Turtsy? Come on, come on. Yeah, I mean, he's worked with them. So, in fact, in, there. There, in fact, there is an episode. If you go way back, uh, our friend, our friend uh, Chris was on it with us, which was about the T game. So, uh, we have plenty of love for them. Don't don't get me wrong. No, yeah, yeah, I'm, and I'm actually excited about this one. That's why I'm talking about it. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if there's an accent on any of these letters. I'm just going to say tile tum, but it's probably wrong. I'm, I'm sure it's wrong. I know I'm saying that wrong, but that's what it's going to be. It's going to be like tile tum or something like that. Um, but it's an economic game set in the Renaissance. You're a rich merchant traveling around Europe, so. Nothing. It's not trading the Mediterranean. It's trading around the Mediterranean, but it's trading in the Mediterranean. Like you're, you're rich. You're buying and selling stuff. You're getting trade contracts for things like wool and iron, and building up your collection of coats of arms. Um, you, you're moving around, investing in cathedrals, gaining favor with nobles, and fulfilling contracts. So all the things that you come to expect from games based in the Renaissance, uh, but it. Like I said, it's Luciani and Tashini, and it's a dice management game. So I'm like 100% on board, just out of the gate. Marco Polo is one of my favorite games of all time. And so if we're going to revisit that kind of game mechanic, and it's not clear if this is like that, but just that mindset of where they're at, I'm super on board with that. So the the dice in this one... It, the, way they, the way they describe it is it has dual functions, right? So each die you take it's going to give you resources and allow you to take an action the more resources you get from the die the weaker the action is the fewer resources you get the more powerful the action is it's i love when it games make you make decisions like that you know like okay i need to find some balance but occasionally i need a really powerful action but it's going to really hurt me on the resources right now that's a cool thing just in general i, lo- I love that mechanic in general so combined with you know contract completion and uh just general dice management from these two designers i think the game will probably be good will it be amazing we'll find out uh i will say none of the t games from the last like two three years have really blown my socks off but maybe this is the one maybe this is the one that does it so i'm looking forward to this i hope it makes its way to the u.s by the end of the year but if it doesn't you know play it next year whenever it shows up I think it's coming out at Essen, so that's why it's so high up on the on the list right now. But yeah, uh, Tile Tum, or please, I know there's plenty of European listeners out there who are happy to tell me when I mispronounce something. Let me know how I'm supposed to say that. But uh, that game is coming out um, this year at some point. So very excited for that. I think fair. I think you just could say it's a new tea game. I think that's fine. Okay, yes. See, it's think- not that they're tea games. It's that they're impossible to pronounce tea games. That's, that's what, what it is, too. It's true. Yeah. Come on. Stop it. Jeez. <laughs> <sighs> ah, well, on the easier side, Anthony, I have a new expansion that's coming out that I think everyone's really interested in. And it's kind of amazing that it, it's coming out so quickly here. This is Arc Nova Aquarius. This is an expansion to the very popular Arc Nova game. 
Uh, Arc Nova is all about creating this futuristic zoo where you're taking care of all of these wonderful animal, animal creatures throughout the world. And this allows more stuff to come into play here. So a couple of the different additions to this game, obviously it has sea animals and what they call reef dwellers. So throughout the game, you'll have the opportunity to put these animals into different enclosures, whether it's it's on the reef or in fact, if it's going to go in the deep ocean. And that's cool, right? So again, we've seen this in a lot of these different games. We saw this in Dinosaur Island when they brought up their aquatic version. Makes a lot of sense, adds a lot of diversity to the game. Challenge always with what this is, is it has a terraforming Mars problem where the deck just becomes bigger and bigger with expansion. So what they've done in order to deal with that ever-growing deck is every time you pull out one of these new aquatic cards, it's going to have a wave icon, which means that you are going to discard the first card in the row and then replenish it. So it's going to cycle the deck a little more quickly, which is good because, yes, that that's somewhat stagnant about that game when you have that just one market row. That was one of, honestly... One of the very few nitpicks I had about that game, because anytime there's a market row and the cards don't move quickly enough, if you need something to match with something else, which you do really need to do in that game, adding more cards is almost a kiss of death. So hopefully that mechanic keeps the game going a little bit. Now, beyond that, there's going to be a fourth university. And this breed registry that comes into play allows you to claim one of the six special universities from the reserve. And it features one of the reserve icons of one of the six animals. So you're just basically going to go through the deck. You're going to pick out an animal based upon how you kind of take those cards out there. And then whatever is revealed, that's going to be the one that matches with that particular university. This was one of the things that I did mention in our early game review of Arc Nova, to be able to specialize in a particular animal. Because you do get those cards in your hand or you see those cards out there. And it's kind of interesting to follow up with a particular species instead of trying to match together a bunch of random things that don't really make much sense. So I think that's a lot of fun. In addition to that, there's going to be new action cards, which is pretty fun. So there's going to be some alternate kind of cards that come into play and what everyone's going to have an opportunity to draft those cards. So you're going to have Um, an opportunity to have two new cards in your kind of action selection area. So it allows for some asymmetry in the game. So not everyone has the same identical actions throughout the game. That's really exciting. Anytime that you can switch up the actions and make a little asymmetrical gameplay, that's pretty cool. So yeah, this is a really good new way to play the game. I had seen some pictures of this at Gen Con. It also had an opportunity to get some bonus tiles uh, so yeah, that's going to be something that's going to be on, I'm sure everyone's shopping list when it comes out, Arc Nova Aquarius 2023, or it's going to come out in 2023. Yeah, I'm excited. I, I like Arc Nova. I honestly don't feel like I've played the game enough yet to mm-hmm. be building for new content, but mm-hmm. I do like the idea of addressing anything that could make the game play smoother, play better, like clearing that market row. Yes. Great. Great mechanic. I know, like, some people don't... I think what a lot of people wanted for the first expansion for Ark Nova, at least some people who are complaining about it <laughs> on Board Game Geek, is a the analog to, like, Terraforming Mars' prelude. Like, yes. a kickstart, a jumpstart to the beginning of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so th- there's actually a pretty lengthy thread on there. People 
on both sides being like, you don't need that. And other people are like, yes, you do. I think we've come across on this that we do want that. Yes. Uh, I don't think it's like Terraforming Mars absolutely needed it. Yes. I don't know if the game absolutely needs it, but I think it would definitely benefit from it. Yes. I, I, I think I think any time the game is as long as it is. And again, I think it just benefits the game. I don't think it makes the game... I don't think you... Again, I, I think the challenge with expansions are what does it add to gameplay? I think we actually had an episode about that. Like expansions do a lot of different things and they usually fall into a certain number of categories. I don't think there's anything broken about Arc Nova that it needs an expansion. That being said, when I get a hand of cards to start with or I look at the market row and I can't afford anything or it's just it's just it's it's just a dump of a hand. I I feel like what you feel like when you play a trick taking game Anthony is just like what am I doing this turn? I'm doing nothing. Right. I'm I'm practically doing nothing in this. So if you do have that prelude kind of mechanic, if you do have a focus a goal if you have more diversity, if the market row clears up a lot quicker, if the market row is kind of split up to other rows or something like that, I think it just adds to the fun. I think I think Arc Nova is a fun game, and I think it's fine how as it is, and you never need to you know bring anything else out. That being said, I think it needs something. I think it just needs something to pop off a little bit more. So I don't know if this is going to be it. I mean, it's nice to have the aquatic creatures because they're really cute to look at, but I don't know if that's going to be as big as maybe the asymmetrical action selection. I think that's pretty substantial and maybe clearing out that market a little quicker, but we'll see. We'll, we'll take it one step at a time and we'll take a look at the expansion when it comes out. All right, everyone. So that's everything that's happening with our acquisition disorders. Now on to our at the table. So we will let everyone know if those games are a buy, if those games are a play, if those games are a dodge, or unfortunately those games are the dreaded burn. Anthony, what did you play this week? All right. So I played a, I'm going to call it a new game, but, you know, it's it's a very light re-implementation of an older game. Uh, this is Framework from Uwe Rosenberg, mm-hmm. and it is a re-implementation of Nova Luna, which has been re-implemented before, uh, well, kind of. Elements of it were used in another game. Um, I think Sagani is what it was called. And Nova Luna itself is a re-implementation or a reworking or use of mechanics that was in a game Habitats. So it's an interesting combination of pedigree and, and time frame. And Nova Luna still has Corneva and Marcel listed as a designer, whereas Framework doesn't. But at the end of the day, the game's very similar. Um, I gave Nova Luna a, a very strong buy when I originally played it. Um, Back in 2019, I really, really enjoyed that game quite a bit. I still have a copy somewhere. Um, and so I picked up Framework because it's, you know, pitched as a re-implementation of Nova Luna. There's really not that many differences. The core idea of the game is you're building a tableau. Every tile has two things on it. It has a thing you need to fulfill and a thing that fulfills. So in this case, the tiles have frames on them of different types. So there's wood and emerald and silver and gold and clay. Um, And some tiles have multiple frames. Some only have one. But they also almost all have in the middle some number of different types of frames that need to be adjacent to them um, or in a combination adjacent to them. And so what you're trying to do is puzzle together as you take these different tiles all of the um, different requirements 
on the printed on the tiles. So if you have a tile that has a requirement of four wood frames, then adjacent to that tile in some way needs to be some collection of four wood frames. Um, they don't have to all be adjacent because some of the numbers get quite high, but like a cluster of them need to be next to it. Uh, very simple. That, that's it, basically. And so you go through, and then the first person to place all their discs out, uh, I think there's 22 of them, uh, that will end the game. And then you count up the score and see who was able to uh, actually complete their framework, their total thing. I forgot what it's called. Um, the solo version of this game is about consolidating. So you're trying to use all 22 of your tokens as efficiently as possible. So you're trying to keep the tiles within a five by five grid. If you go beyond that five by five grid, you get negative points for every tile outside of that. And so you just keep going until you've used all 22 tokens. Uh, I, I find it very interesting. Um, it's plays really fast. I wouldn't say it's the most grueling or, or mind uh, burning game out there, but it is an interesting abstract strategy um, uh, exercise. The thing about this, though, with Framework, and I like it a lot. Like, if I'd never played Nova, Nova Luna, I'd be like, this is great. I'd probably still give it a buy because it's a relatively inexpensive, fun, quick, abstract game. But I still have Nova Luna, right? And I like that one better because it has this other element, this time track, that basically creates a draft. So as you're building your tableau, there's tiles in this timeline available uh, and you can see where they are and people can interact with each other a little bit more. Whereas in framework, it's just, you're going to draw a certain number of tiles. You're going to play the certain number of tiles. It's not, you don't really have the kind of the fluidity of it. The solo game kind of ends up being very similar because of that. Like, obviously you can't adjust for that, but I think both are good. I think framework is a little more accessible. It's easier to understand. There's less planning or thinking ahead um, required. The weight listing on BGG is basically the same. Um, but I, if I was going to play framework with, or one of these with the family, I'd play framework because it's easier to explain. But if you own Nova Luna, I don't, I don't know that you need this one as well. Like I have both of them. I, I like them both. Um, I don't know where my copy of Nova Luna is. So I've played framework a bunch recently, but it's, it's not like, it's not, it, it's weird that they put it under as a re-implementation because there aren't a ton of changes to the way the game works. It is very similar. Um, it's, it's just Nova Luna without the time track effectively, but that's not a bad thing. If you've never played either of these, if you like abstract games, if you want to see a fun puzzle from Uwe Rosenberg, this is a very fun puzzle from Uwe Rosenberg. And I highly recommend you check it out. Um, for me personally, framework is a play. I will at some point probably pass it along because I have the other game, but if you don't own either, um, I'd recommend checking it out and tracking down a copy. They're not terribly expensive. It's interesting. There's so many games, and this is one of the interesting things about the hobby that a lot of people don't know is that board game mechanics cannot be owned. So therefore, these I you know these mechanics are available to be utilized in other games, and since they're not trademarked in that kind of way, in particular, then anybody can use them. So you can re-implement the games multiple times. Uwe Rosenberg obviously is one of the best designers of all time. So it's good to have his hands on that particular mechanic, but it does also make me wonder again about the viability of these things. Is it, is it just that like you mentioned that 
this game has already been out in a different format and now it's out again. Like I mean, it's I Rosenberg. Yes. Yeah. Does that yeah. with all of his games, right? It's just it's so hard to know. <laughs> just like which of which of the twelve versions of this should I buy? Like I don't and then like in five minutes there's another version? I don't I don't know. Yeah. And I, I like I haven't checked uh, like maybe Nova Luna's out of print. And it was a stronghold game. Yeah. As framework, I believe, is Pegasus. So it's, it's cheaper mm-hmm. because Nova Luna was like fifty dollars. Yeah, it was which, really expensive. I remember seeing that. It was like, and what do you get in this game exactly? So, hundred and twenty tiles and a couple yeah. little bit. Yeah, you can find used copies of no, Nova Luna, but it looks like it's not in print anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so framework's the one to get unless you can find the used copy. But yeah, I do remember Nova Luna when that one came out. It was stupidly expensive for one yes. to hit. It's a beautiful game, but it, again, Stronghold Games is just kind of really was really well known for like overcharging for their games. All right, so that's everything that's in our table this week. Now on to our feature review. So our feature review this week is looking at two of the biggest series of all times, both in book and on TV now. Obviously, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings. We're taking a look at the Rings of Power versus the House of the Dragon games. All the games that are in that whole family of games. Anthony, again, we talked about this a little bit. You have a little experience in both of these areas, both in books and TV shows and, I don't know, movies? I think their movies are a thing, especially your kids now are kind of getting into it a little bit. So um, what are your own personal thoughts and feelings about these just mega kind of media empire slash book movie <laughs> television shows that never seem to come to an end? Yeah, no, it, it's a funny thing. Um, both of these series, you know, we, we think of them now as like cinematic and television experiences. I I came to both of them through the books. I think a lot of people came through Lord of the Rings through the books. You know, the, the books existed for almost 50 years before they made a movie, or at least made a successful movie, <laughs> notwithstanding the 70s movies. Yeah, the Franklin Bass, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I had read those multiple times. I knew the stories well. And it was a funny thing, though, because I really loved fantasy fiction and Lord of the Rings never quite did it for me. Like Tolkien's pro, he's a genius, but his prose was not engaging to me personally as a reader. Um, So when the movies came out, I was like, oh, this is it. This is my definitive version of this story because I I don't love rereading these books, but I will rewatch these movies till the end of time. Um, Game of Thrones is almost the opposite of that. And that's part of that's just the ending of that show. Uh, and I really, really hope that the rest of those books come out because it's impossible to explain how just intricate and different it feels to read Game of Thrones versus watching it. Yes. And part of that is because Martin uses point of view characters in each chapter. So mm-hmm. every event on the show was presented from the view of a single person. Mm hmm. And he has dozens of people he does this with. So he's able to get inside the heads. And as somebody who writes fiction, it's just mind-blowing to me that he can just get inside the heads of all these different people and nail their voice. Mm -hmm. So I love reading those. I've reread the first three books like two or three times just the last 10 years, despite not knowing when we're going to get the rest of the books. Um, And so like media-wise... I'll consume anything that comes out for either of these. Like, yes. You know, we make fun of Game of Thrones season eight, but I watched it. So <laughs> I'm going to watch House of the Dragon. It's just, 
it's a different thing though when you kind of take that jump from the media to the games and it's the same thing like i'll play every game but what do i want to get out of it that's a different conversation yeah for me lord of the rings i came to i think initially i'm trying to remember what what was the first kind of takeaway from this i think it was the animation fact which was back in the day where they really weren't sure what they were doing with animation like Again, I think the modern day studios understand how to do animation that appeals both to children and adults. And back then it was a really weird, surreal mix. If you haven't seen those early Hobbit Lord of the Rings animated versions, I think you owe it to yourself to see those because I think they're just, there's something so iconic about them. And they're just so weirdly different. I don't think they're bad at all. I just think they're just very different. There are some elements to it, especially now in hindsight, now that we have movies and TV shows, that it's really hard to look back at the older stuff. But there are just some elements that really do stand up to, like, as a proper representation. And then obviously for myself coming to the books later, the movies, of course, were iconic and was a big part of my, you know, my family's viewing and especially the video games, uh, War of the Ring, um, I think the Battle for Middle-Earth, I think it was Battle for Middle-Earth 1 and 2, especially 2. I used to play that game like crazy. That was an RTS, a real-time strategy game. I was pretty, I was just, in, I was loving that game. I would play that all the time, upper ranks. I was just, it was it was a really crazy time, and it was a, a fantastic game. And then just, honestly, I was not familiar with, the whole Song of Ice and Fire, you know, when Game of Thrones was coming out on the TV. And I was like, what is this? It's kind of like Lord of the Rings. And then you learn so much about the author and how much love and appreciation he had for Lord of the Rings and J.R.R. Token. And then you're like, oh, this is cool. And then you're watching the series and you're like, oh, this is a little different. This is not at all Lord of the Rings. And after watching the show, coming then to the books and seeing the differences and understanding what it means to have a, a, a masterpiece, to have a, a master at work, in fact, with the books, with the material, in order to show that, ensure that the show and the movies and everything else that follows with it is great because once they ran out of book material, the show really suffered, right? They were just kind of doing the best that they, I guess the best they could. I mean, it's debatable, but we'll leave that to another time. But coming into board gaming... And recognizing that there were games out there, and again, my initial kind of experience of IP-based games was from the video game industry back in the day when those were like literally the worst games. Like anything that had like a movie tie-in to a video game was the worst. It was like E.T. and then everything else that followed was a nightmare. And then you sit down, you play board games, and you're like, okay, wait a minute. Unless it's like a Monopoly version of it, like people really put a lot of time, effort, and passion into this work. And again, even if you were not a big fan of these genre pieces, you got to admit the games were amazing. And I played these games with so many different types of people over the years. And there's so many versions from very light to very heavy to complex to social games. There's just so many different dynamics in these two games. I don't think there's anything that matches up with this, to be honest. I mean, you have your Star Wars and your Star Trek, stuff like that. But those are kind of one note. These games have a lot of different facets to them that i haven't seen in any other ip genres that we've come across so i think it's a fascinating collection both sides and it's a fascinating kind of versus battle ups as far as what you're looking for as far as game is concerned 
yeah, no, it, it is interesting because, you know, you have kind of the the progenitor of Western modern fantasy yeah. in uh, Lord of the Rings. And then you have the current modern representation of that, you know, basically 20th century and 21st century. Yeah. Uh, although Game of Thrones started in the 90s. It, it's really fascinating. And it's really fascinating, too, like from our end on the gaming side to see mm-hmm. how they're interpreted into games. Right, because there are certain things about these IPs that make them what they are. Does the game capture that? And that's, you know, ends up being what you like or don't like about a game, right? Yeah, and I think as far as you know, factors that we look at as far as like what makes these games great or what makes the, the different IP collections great is the thematic integration. So when you're playing these games, do you actually feel like you're playing part of the story? Or do you feel like you're playing the characters? Is is there elements to it that makes you like makes you feel like you're making similar decisions that the people in those particular times and places made? You know, is is there a story to be told from your point of view? Like again, you don't get that with a lot of IP games. Like I said, there's a lot of there was like a lot of early skin pasted on themes. These games don't seem to have as many if or if any whatsoever. And that's what's so evocative about them because the themes and the characters and the decisions and the poetry and the philosophy comes out in the choices that you make in the games. And that's a unique game experience to be able to have because watching something on a movie or a television show or even sometimes reading a book is a very passive experience. This is a proactive experience. You are an active player in that story and you're making decisions that are affecting others and creating a narrative and i think that's amazing and again it just again goes back to these wondrous authors who put so much dedication and world building in here that the games actually reflect that as well right so with that said anthony uh we have two amazing areas where you want to start yeah so we've Figured we'd look at this in a couple ways, right? We have our lists of games that have been released in the last 20 years or so. Uh, but, you know, rather than just running through every game on either side, because that would take a bit of time, let's look <laughs> at, like, how they perform at a few different areas. And specifically, we've chosen four. Um, theme integration, which I think is, anytime you're talking about IP-based games, that's got to be the number one thing we talk about. Like, how well does the game capture the theme? Mm-hmm artwork in the game like how what does it look like because we're talking about visual media here as well as book media Mm -hmm. um the actual quality of the game like is it fun to play on top of all that and the replayability right like how often can you come back to this game and really continue to get more out of it um so i I figured you know we just rip off the band-aid we start with theme integration because if we're going to if you're going to play anything, you're going to play the one that best represents the theme. Um, and for me, you know, loving both of these IPs, mm-hmm. this is kind of a deciding factor for me for a while. Mm. So uh, there's a few different ways, th- a few different games that I think, you know, do a really good job of this, right? Um, on the Lord of the Rings side, obviously, we've talked about War of the Ring, one of the most thematic board games ever made. You are literally going on the quest to destroy the ring or trying to stop them um but it's it's not just war of the ring right there's also battle of the five armies really captures the hobbit 
the ending of that book. Hunt for the Ring um, really captures the first like half of Fellowship when they're you know trying to get to Rivendell. Um, the there's a couple other games, and the thing about Lord of the Rings when we talk about this is most people know the the trilogy, right? They know the three books that were released, like the major publications, which is just basically the four books that Tolkien published and then the movies based on those. Um, but there's other things beyond that because Tolkien wrote a ton of notes and appendices and um, a lot of material that his son then kind of mined through and published a bunch more of, right? So we, ha- we know a lot of the history. We know a lot of the different characters that don't necessarily show up in that trilogy. And so game makers have mined a lot of that as well. So we have games like Lord of the Rings, the card game or the Lord of the Rings journeys in middle earth, which don't really rehash the trilogy. Uh, The card game has materials to do that. If you want to rehash the trilogy again, but it goes on different adventures and looks at other characters and brings in new scenarios and, and situations that are based on kind of that other information. So it's, it's, you can dive even deeper into the lore of Lord of the Rings if you want to. And if you have that background and you've read those other things like the Silmarillion, um, or you can stick just to the trilogy materials like in War of the Ring. Uh, so that's always been really fascinating to me. Game of Thrones doesn't really have, it has a little bit of that, right? Which has kind of come out recently. That's how House of the Dragon exists. It's based on kind of secondary texts that George R. R. Martin has written that is not in the main series of books. But most of the materials come from those five books. Um, and the kind of the two big ones here, if we're talking about like representation of theme, is Game of Thrones, the board game, specifically the second edition with the Mother of Dragons expansion. And then a Game of Thrones, the card game, also second edition, although I guess they're both kind of out of print now so it doesn't really matter which one we're talking about there um and those two kind of try to capture all the different elements mostly of the books i think both of these are based on the books as ip uh and then there's also it's it's a skirmish game so it doesn't really have as much of the lore but a song of ice and fire which is the name of that series actually uh tabletop miniatures game does bring in a lot of stuff from those books as well, because you mm-hmm. can have units that represent all the dozens and dozens and hundreds of characters that populate those five books, um, which is difficult to do in a card game. So, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that the, all these games are approaching this and kind of integrating the theme. Uh, how do you think that they do it? Yeah, I think, the, I think the really interesting thing about both of these series is that there are overarching themes that the author is trying to communicate to us that we really need to pay particular attention to. So for Lord of the Rings, famously, I guess, spoiler alert, I guess in some, in some cases a little bit, not, not for Rings of Power. We know nothing about Rings of Power other than it's on Amazon. That's, that's as far as we go with that. But for, you know, for Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, it's the concept of in a very first in a very simple way, good versus evil, right? So, but in a more deep, important way, it is in fact that the small actions that we take every day, and the simpleness and 
kindness and compassion and individual hope that we have is in fact the essential part of humanity and what will in fact save the world. So when you watch Lord of the Rings, and if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan and you look at it, you're like, oh, cool, gigantic battles. So yes, I've seen these things a thousand times. But when you actually watch the movies or read the books, you read about the hobbits, you read about the small individual acts of heroism and how the hobbits were the most unimportant you know, population of people that could possibly be. So when you play the board games, yes, you still have these gigantic, massive armies with dragons and just endless numbers of dark creatures. And and yes, that is part of the game, right? And just like in life in general, there are these bigger than life, good versus evil kind of conflicts. But in the end, especially in Hunt for the Ring, and then again, when we play War of the Ring, it comes down to these giant armies, you know, facing down each other, but it is the journey and the travels and the challenges that the ring bearer faces throughout the journey. And that's what the essential part is. And the good characters are trying to do all they can. In fact, even in case of sacrificing themselves to give the hobbits, the opportunity to succeed. So when you play these games thematically, you are involving yourself in a story that at one point is as big and as world-breaking as possible, but at its core, it's about individual personal courage and determination and belief and hope, and you get to play that in the game. When you take those dice rolls and you're trying to move your hobbits stealthily down you know, these dark pathways, you're kind of, it's, it is a, one of those things where you're, you know, you're grinding your teeth each step of the way, and it does feel like the books. Now, on the opposite side, Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire, when you're playing those games, again, the assumption, again, is from George R. R. Martin taking J.R.R. Tolkien's kind of work and almost turning it on its head. So in this case, when you play that, you do, again, have those gigantic battles, and it looks like it's always going to be, again, very much good versus evil kind of situation. But Game of Thrones is all about the gray. All of these characters have good and bad parts, some more than others, as far as how much of a thing they absolutely have. So when you do play uh, Game of Thrones, the board game, and you're setting up to take over the kingdoms and, and claim the Iron Throne, you have to partner with a lot of local allies, knowing that at multiple stages in the game, you will have to betray them and also they will betray you. So as you're placing these tokens down hidden on the board, sometimes you're supporting them, sometimes you're betraying them, sometimes you're attacking them. And that's very much indicative of the Game of Thrones world. That whole universality of like, we're all kind of gray. We're all kind of out there for ourselves. We're making partnerships, but are they really partnerships? So again, you're choosing to do that over and over again in many of the games from Game of Thrones. And again, it, it challenges you to properly negotiate and navigate the sea of treachery that you're going to have to be on. But at the same time, you need to earn allies' trust in order to be able to succeed, in order to bring all the kingdoms together. So both games, massive armies, knights, dragons, the whole kind of thing. 
but really they come to two very different ways of playing and two ways of, you know, really integrating that theme. And I think they do pretty much a great job. It's, it's kind of hard to pick one or the other, but I think as far as both of those sides are concerned, they're pretty even. I, I do feel like when I play Game of Thrones, do feel like I got to go that way. When I do play Lord of the Rings, I do feel like I'm, I'm, I have to kind of make the hero play there. Yeah, no, I can't argue with that. Like, it, they really do feel like you're in that space. And then, honestly, it comes down to which of those feelings do you want to have? Yes. Right? <laughs> do you want to end your friendships? <laughs> Thrones all day. They're there for you. Yeah, I have some of the best stories in the world playing Game of Thrones. I mean, honestly, like the little side deals people make and you walk out of the room, you come back, you're like, uh-oh, that's not good. That's not good at all. <laughs> I'm going to the bathroom. So are these three people. <laughs> and you're just like, uh, why am I the only person at the table at the moment? Oh, no. <laughs> but at the same time, they're doing some backstabbing of their own. So again, a, a lot of fun as far as the game is concerned and really evocative of the whole the whole theme. So if you watch anything Game of Thrones, especially the new Rings of Power, you'll get it. Yeah, yeah. All right, so theme is hard, right? Like they both do a really good job. But what about the artwork, right? So this is another area where it, we have some very iconic, amazing work that's done across all these games. Um, War of the Ring has just absolutely fantastic, beautiful artwork. The second edition specifically, I don't, I don't know the, the first edition as well, but John Howe's art in this game is, to me, iconic mm-hmm. um, and, and really captures the the feel of that. And I think the best artwork in any of these is, is obviously the, the artwork that's based on the books. So like a creative artistic interpretation of the text rather than just kind of a clever uh, watercolor version of what we see in the movies sure. or the TV show. Especially um, the living, living card games do a great job, too. Yeah, absolutely. The living card games, I think, are the best example of this because you get so much artwork, hundreds and hundreds of cards, with so many different, you know, looks and feel like that original core concept of like Magic the Gathering, going back to the 90s of like, okay, we're gonna make this card game, we're gonna have new cards every multiple times a year, we're gonna get the best artists in the hobby, and they're gonna contribute their artwork, and it's gonna be unique and different. And it's like, aesthetically, there's like a com- a common thread, but it's a lot of different interpretations of the same source material. Mm. Um, and we get kind of the same with the living card games, with the thousands of cards that exist for both of these games. Uh, so I don't know. For me, it's really hard. Like, I, I really, really enjoy, especially the first edition of Game of Thrones, the card game, like the kind of ethereal, dark, stark look of it mm-hmm. uh, still really sticks with me. Yeah, both of these are really as you said, it's for the living card game and even the maps. I think mm. that's something that sometimes we, we, we don't really pay much en- enough attention to. I mean, Lord of the Rings has just one of the most iconic maps of Middle Earth, but then obviously Game of Thrones with Westeros. And I think that most people, especially because both of those, you know, both of these shows have become so big. If you show them the map, I think general public people will probably have a, good, a better shot at it than just general geography. I think they... It'll give you a good shot that they know what those things are. So I think both of these games do a great job with the actual artwork. And I think the board presentations are fantastic. And since the boards, you know, controlling those lands 
are essential for that. I, I think that's wonderful to both have really amazing graphic designs throughout. And then I, I think, as you said, Anthony, both really give you that kind of storybook feel and that emotionality in the in the artwork there. I mean, they're so evocative, I, I, especially I think War of the Ring, the card game is coming out this year from Ares Games. And some of it's new artwork, but a lot of it's being pulled from the board game. Now, I know some of that's from, you know, from financial standpoint, but some so much of that artwork is iconic. It really is iconic. So I'm really, I'm really, really glad to see that there too. So again, two very different takes as far as, you know, those kind of living card games are concerned, especially that they're bringing such a different take to it. You know, you do get the sinister side from the Game of Thrones. Like if you look at the living card game, just take a look at their eyes. Their eyes are always like darting or like looking off. Like it's never like a nice smiling portrait or somebody when you play like Lord of the Rings, you're like, oh, he's happy. He will not be happy later. But in this card, he's happy. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah. No, it really does capture the theme really well too, kind of tying back to that first one. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that too. All right. So next up, game quality. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, we've kind of only mentioned so far, like the best of the best of both of these. Sure. There are a lot of games made for both of these themes, right? Mm. We did a whole episode earlier this year, back in, I think, February on Lord of the Rings and our um, from book to board series. And we went through, I think, 10 or 15 different games. Mm -hmm. And some of them are really good. Some of them are okay, and some are not so good, right? But if you're looking back over the last 20 years or so, we have Knizia's Lord of the Rings. We have War of the Ring, of course. Um, Lord of the Rings, The Confrontation. Middle Earth Quest. Lord of the Rings, The Card Game. Mm-hmm. The deck games from Cryptozoic are not terrible. <laughs> Surprisingly. Yeah, they're, they're all right. Uh, Battle of Five Armies, Hunt for the Ring. And then most recently, Lord of the Rings, Journeys in Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have not played Wuthering the Card Game yet, but that will be out by the end of the year as well. So that will mm-hmm. also be out. These are all good games. And yes. I would say three or four of these are like top tier games. I think three of these are on my top 100 list. So, and I love both of these themes equally. So it's not just being like, oh, I love Lord of the Rings. So of course, all their games are on my <laughs> They're legitimately amazing. Um, War of the Ring, Lord of the Rings, the card game, uh, and Journeys in Middle Earth. And that's not even including Battles for Five Armies, which I love, just not as much as War of the Ring. On the Game of Thrones side, we mentioned the board game. It's brilliant. Also a top 100 game. Mentioned the card game. Brilliant. If you can get your hands on an older collection of this stuff, absolutely do it and play with your friends. And then there's a pretty sharp (laughs) drop-off. So um, once you get through those two, there are some decent games in there. But they're not like that high, high level of quality, the iconicness that we have uh, of with the Lord of the Rings games. So we have the Iron Throne, which I believe is a reimplementation of Cosmic Encounter, mm-hmm. uh, which if you love Cosmic Encounter and you love Game of Thrones, is a perfect game for you. But Cosmic Encounter is like a borderline activity at times over a game. Yeah. So it's like a, a party situation there. Um we have Catan, Brotherhood of the Watch, which is one of the more involved, overly produced <laughs> Catan variants, but it's also a Catan variant. So again, if you like Catan, that's for you. Um, Hand of the King is a game that we both really liked back in the day, but it doesn't really capture fully like the theme 
It's got some really interesting artwork that's different and unique mm-hmm. on the cards you don't normally see. Um, Betwixt is, I still don't quite understand what this game is. <laughs> it came out earlier this year. Uh, it's uh, a Fantasy Flight release, but it's an auction bidding game. So you're kind of like vying for control of King's Landing. Uh, it's, it's a very specific mechanic set in this universe. And that's kind of what we see a lot with the Game of Thrones, different types of games. It's like, let's set something in this universe. Let's use this specific mechanic. Everything has to be backstabby in some way. And it kind of narrows down what the games can do. Mm. Um, Oathbreaker is another one that just was not a great game, but came out recently and was fairly easily to find. Um, I mentioned the tabletop miniatures game. It's very good, but it's also very expensive and it's like a one V one kind of skirmish game. So it's kind of hard to get to the table and game quality wise, you have to invest heavily to have a lot of options to build your armies with. So I, I I'm not trying to say Lord of the Rings definitely wins this category, but it, it kind of does just based on quality uh, because Game of Thrones, again, two amazing games there, but Lord of the Rings, and maybe it's like you said, the theme offers so many different interpretations and ways to kind of engage with the material. Whereas Game of Thrones, the first thing any game designer thinks is backstab. That's yeah. what we're doing with backstab. Yeah, I think the backstabbing for Game of Thrones lends itself to a lot of those less interesting games. And I think that's kind of a mistake because, again, whether it's a book or the TV show, if you're familiar with the material, it's not just a it's not just one of those things where like, oh, you're playing a Game of Thrones, you know, card game. It's this kind of really interesting game where basically you flip a card and you backstab and you kill somebody like that's not it. Like if you watch the show, read the books, like it takes a while and the person suffers. Like yeah. <laughs> it is like deep and dark kind of betrayal. It is not a quick stab and you're dead kind of situation. It's like, yeah, you're going to feel that in the morning. So it's, it's kind of sad that they overly simplified that down to the point with a lot of these kind of throwaway games. And it is interesting, in fact, that Game of Thrones doesn't have higher quality games here because most of these games were, were released in more of the modern age of board gaming, the, the recent like last 20 years. So it's it's kind of funny. It's just like, but why? Why why wouldn't you have like the top kind of line stuff? Now, some of that's publishers. Uh, I think Lord of the Rings has benefited from some of the better publishers and I do think that surprisingly enough, you know, a lot of those Lord of Rings games should be bad games. But one of the things you forgot to mention, Anthony, is that the ultimate grail game of all grail games, the greatest produced board game of all time, War of the Ring, the collector's edition that came out in 2010, was what? It was just a small run. It was this fantastic collection. It looks like the actual book. It has amazing miniatures. It's going for what? 2000 some odd dollars if you could find a copy with the painted mint it just it's above and beyond the quality that any other game has reached you know forget about game of thrones like any other game that game really just did everything it's impossible to find it's it's the game it's the game there's nothing else to it the rest of the stuff is kind of board game ish but typically fits that kind of general area the only thing that i will say for game of thrones that it could have actually, you know, bested Lord of the Rings as far as, you know, game quality was their miniatures game. But Simon kind of, you know, was out there and about. 
And I don't know, like it just, it just never landed to the table. It just never produced what it should have produced. It's just never that level of quality. Lord of the Rings was that level of quality, honestly, throughout their games. And I, I guess one of the things we can even kind of talk about a little bit, which is kind of funny, is both of them have risk versions yeah. of the game. And the Risk Lord of the Rings, I think, is one of those games that, like, even if you're not a fan of Lord of the Rings, it's highly recommended you play that because it's a really great version of Risk, including amazing game components. Yeah, the, the Risk thing is always funny because those games, you, you know, you're like, oh, it's mass produced. It's just a, mm-hmm. a glom off theme. But, like, Risk, for whatever reason, like, Monopoly is always a throwaway, but Risk, yeah. they tend to actually put some time into matching up the mechanics with the theme so yeah, some of those are good. Yeah, very cool yeah but i think as far as game quality is concerned especially with the collector's edition and some of the additional game companies lord of the rings comes out ahead in that one yeah yeah definitely i can't argue with that mm-hmm. all right uh and then the final category the factor here that we picked out is replayability like which of these games can you come back to again and again and again the same way we come back to the books and the movies and the TV shows again and again and again. Uh, if we're ranking games in terms of replayability, I think the ones that are going to stand out the most are going to be miniatures games, the card games. Uh, but that said, a game like War of the Ring, because of the depth and the expansions and everything that's in there, you could play that a lot. I would love to play it a lot. The main <laughs> Barrier to doing that is how long it takes to play. Mm-hmm. Um, Game of Thrones, the board game, has the same problem. You need four or six people, and it takes many hours. So it, it's a weird thing of like, yeah, you could play these games every week for the rest of your life, but really, can you? Can you get the group? Can you make it happen? And that's the barrier. It's not so much, I think, it, in the case of all these games that are actually very good, there's a lot of depth there, and you can really mine it for a very long time, but how long can you realistic, like how realistic is that to actually do? And I know some people do it. So if you're listening, you're like, I do that. And I'm like, I'm, I wish I was you because I can't do that. Um, but not all these games are easy to get to the table, right? Yeah. I think each of these games have a lot of challenges as far as the, the complexity and the, the personal investment of it. It's not just a long game. It's not just a complicated game. And again, there's a lot of variations of these games, but again, the benefit of the theme integration sometimes, in fact, pushes some people away. Maybe you don't want to backstab your friends. Maybe you don't want to run up through their territory. Maybe you don't want to be, you know, biting off the last of your nails as the hobbits, you know, walk into Mordor because we know that no one does that simply. Now, here's the one thing that for me, you know, stands out for Lord of the Rings as far as replayability is concerned, this is the one special thing that they do. I don't think anyone else has done, at least. Well, I mean, I guess Century Spice Road does this. But if you play Lord of the Rings, one of the really cool things about it is you can play Hunt for the Ring, where the hobbits are traveling alone, trying to get away from the Nazgul. And based on how that game plays out, gives you a different starting point in War of the Ring. Mm. So you're actually playing two games, a very short, interesting kind of, you know, stealth game, and then the bigger game. So there are very few games that do that. So as far as replayability is concerned, 
you know, like that adds to it. You know, that brings other games to the table that I have not seen happen before. Yeah, no, that that is huge, I, th- I think. And that's that's hard to match because there's not mm. a lot of games that could even do that. The no. Moment, right? You'd have to have that journey element to be able to carry something over like that. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, maybe House, you know, House of the Dragon for Game of Thrones, you know, maybe this prequel series will give them an opportunity to build something like that in there with the Targaryen kind of history here. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. So it'll be interesting to see how both kind of, you know, histories and systems, because even Rings of Power is a prequel series as well. Both of these are prequel series. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and like hundreds and thousands of years, too. So it's, it's we're going way back. There's a lot, yeah. a lot there to work with. Mm-hmm. So what do you think, Anthony, wrapping this all up? Yeah, I think... The bottom line here, I think, is if you're a fan of either of these IPs, there's some really good games out there that you should go mm-hmm. check out. Uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, I, I've mentioned multiple times in this episode that several of these games are among my favorites all time. I played at least one Lord of the Rings game a month, probably, between all of these. And I would play more if I could. Um Game of Thrones has some absolutely fantastic implementations as well. I think one of the limiting factors of Game of Thrones is that one company had the license sure. for so long. Still has the license, I think. Mm-hmm. You don't get like the creativity and breadth of different types of games that you got with Lord of the Rings, where multiple different companies were making games mm. uh, with that IP. But that said, you know, if you like one or the over the other, you're gonna find a game that's good for you. Sure. Just absolutely going to find a game and if you like both then smorgasbord pick and choose <laughs> they're amazing um if you need a good starting point i would say look at the card games you know those are a little more accessible a little mm. less expensive and you don't need a big group or a really long chunk of time to play them sure if you want something epic that really represents the theme then war of the ring or game of thrones support game are both just fantastic games yeah something else to mention too Obviously, if you want to play Lord of the Rings, play at the table. I mean, for one, that's mostly the way it plays. I mean, both of these do have multiple video game versions that are available online. Game of Thrones recently released uh, Game of Thrones, the board game online. I think, I don't know if they have the Dragon expansion yet for it. I would highly, highly, highly recommend if you do want to play Game of Thrones, the board game, play it on Steam. Play that version on Steam. It's a very good version. Gives you the opportunity to get people on, you know, on Discord and have those conversations. The board itself and the pieces are very nice, but they're not essential. You can play this game online and have a great time. And there's it's a there's a lot of little fiddly pieces with it. So the video game version really clears that up. Where Lords of the Rings, like they have an online version for their card game, it is not nearly as good as the actual uh, physical presentation of the game. They just they switch up some rules. They're trying to be more Hearthstone-ish. Uh, their digital versions don't really do it as much as well, at least not yet. But uh, I think, as Anthony said, start with the card games. Uh, War of the Ring, the card game from Ares Games, will be coming out this year. Really good starting point. Everyone will be brand new but it has so many of the best elements of War of the Ring. And currently, I guess, Game of Thrones, the card game, the second edition, you can pick that up pretty inexpensively. And the base game actually has multiple houses in it versus the first version, which was a little limited as far as what they offered. 
And I think that's somewhat more of the definitive version of this. Again, emphasizing the artwork, the treachery, the planning, the backstabbing, the the warfare and things like that. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's a great way to, to go. All right, everyone. So that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll see if you all see it at the table. Take care. Bye. See you. Credit Card Bill.